This is WLPNLP Chicago, 105.5 FM, Lumpen Radio. Buildings on Air with Kiefer Dunn on Lumpen Radio. Hey folks, this is Buildings on Air, the, fo- the show where we talk about politics and architecture. How about that new intro that our producer, Jamie Trecker, put together? We're, we're a real show now. Uh, we've been going for seven episodes. That's 14 hours of conversations about architecture and um, seven episodes deep, seven months. So very exciting. And I'm extra excited to uh, bring back one of our... Uh, one of our first few repeat guests uh, entering an elite crew, um, and that's Jeff Roberts, who came in way back in December, episode two, uh, to talk about his proposal, you might remember, um, for the flying pigs in front of Trump Tower. Now, uh, Jeff, thanks for coming on. Happy to be here. Yeah. So for those of uh, our listeners who might not remember this or just tuning in, um, maybe you could just describe the project from, well, I guess, like a 300-foot view. <laughs> so so what the project ultimately looks like is uh, four gold uh, balloon pigs that are the size of – each one's the size of a London double-decker bus floated just in the visual field of the Trump sign in Chicago. We're tethering them off a surface in the river. Uh, and the whole thing is about providing visual relief to the citizens of Chicago um, from the, you know, the rather iconic uh, sign that's on that yes, building. The gigantic sign that yes. is like three stories high and uh, very visible from miles away when Indeed. you're coming right down Wabash Avenue. <laughs> right. And, and, and the most one of the most important parts of the city, right? One of the most visible parts of the city. Yeah. It brands it in a very unfortunate way. Yeah, yeah. It's one of the very few buildings in the city where you have, because uh, you know we're we're on a grid here, so it's very rare that a building, um, you know, is at the end of a long run of street. Uh, usually, it just goes on and on forever. So you know, this this has vantage points from the river and, and Wabash, and so it, yeah, it's a very cool project and. Um, you know, I think when you were first on the show, it was just kind of like this tongue-in-cheek sort of like uh, like symbolic, like wouldn't it be great if we could if we could just do this? And um, here we are, uh, you know, many months later, and uh, the project's on the cusp of becoming a reality. A- absolutely. Uh, after the initial release, uh, when we talked with you, uh, within about a week of that, the whole project went international. Uh, we we did interviews all over the world. Uh, we were in papers everywhere. And we got a lot of feedback on on the project and the, what people thought about it. And uh, so that was grand. Uh, we got to talk about something iconic that we were creating that had a message. So after the big you know, press uh, exposure of that, we kind of closed things down, quieted it up, and then went back to the drawing board and said, okay, we've always knew that this could be done in some fashion. Okay, now how do we do it? Yeah. And let's see if it's logistically possible. And if it is, then we'll come back and do another press release. And you know, we had to haggle, haggle out things with the city. You have to look at the engineering of this thing. You have to look at the fabrication possibilities of these balloons. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Yeah. I mean, I, I really appreciate the ambition uh, because, you know, a lot of times when we when we as architects do these kind of tongue-in-cheek speculative proposals, and we, we've talked about this on the show too in reference to some of the proposals that were being done for Trump's wall, mm-hmm. right? And, um, you know, you have, have architects who are in good faith proposing sort of like, you know, alternatives, right? Or Mm -hmm. like art projects. And um, 
but but the fact that this one is like is going to happen and and that there is the ambition to like hey let's do it we're not just kind of here for the jokes like you know this this is symbolic but you know the symbolism somehow means more and is earnest if it's actually a realized project like that that to me is uh, something special so I'm, I'm wondering if that was just like a natural thing of like hey we're architects and we build so we're just going to do it or like if it's a na- the nature of your practice or that, that's it all the above i mean we we know that it uh, it seems like a, a funny gesture to do this. I mean, the, yeah. the whole topic, if you look at it on the surface, floating giant balloon pigs, uh, and you don't look any deeper, it, it has a funny note. But to us all along, it's been very, very serious and a very dedicated design effort. Yeah. Uh, and if you recall from our original conversation, we talked about the, the layers of meaning. And if you take this back to its core, it really is a visual representation of Animal Farm, which is very serious. It's about yeah. totalitarianism and political, um, you know, issues. And, and it's – so it to us, it has that very – kind of very rich meaning. Right. So uh, we felt that it was worth fighting for. Yeah, that's great. And, I, you know, I think too – this is also a president who has very thin skin, as has been <laughs> noted by, like, uh, m- many, many commenters. And, um, you know, I think um, I'm, I'm sort of dubious of, like, some of the claims. Like, you know, you think back to the election and John Oliver being like, oh, let's call him Trump, right? And it's mm-hmm. like, okay, all right, like, is this really going to, like, do, do much? But, like, this seems like the kind of uh, gesture that might actually, like, get under the skin in a really meaningful way. <laughs> yeah, well, it's uh, it's not something you're going to be able to ignore. And it's it's not designed uh, to, to kind of get that kind of response. That's sure. really not even our target. If it yeah. happens, so be it. Sure. But really what we see this is about is kind of binding our community together, people that are thinking more rationally, more sensibly, and more inclusively Yeah. versus the complete contrast of that, which, you know, we, we initiated this thing because of the campaign and the election. And now that these guys are in office, they're just deploying the same thing they talked about in the, in the campaign, you yeah. know, or, or they're acting in the same uh kind of with the same attitude. Yeah, that's yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> yeah. And I and I it's also unfortunate. It is unfortunate. Yeah. And you know, it's uh it's also nice it's like our our civic pride here in Chicago is um maybe aggravating to people who aren't from here, but um you know, we've got a lot of listeners to uh, uh who listen to the podcast from New York, so um we're just going to roll with it. We're we're not the second city, we're the first city. <laughs> I like it. But, uh, Absolutely. <laughs> but I think uh yeah, I mean, I really think that, you know, with the history of sort of political activism um, and left activism in Chicago and the kind of massive turnouts that we've seen uh, for for these events, it, it really does feel like it's that a project like this can further coalesce that um, civic pride um, and that uh, on-the-ground resistance um, in a very, very meaningful and real way. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, as we've worked through this, we've put hundreds of hours into it uh, of just time that doesn't have any dollar value to it, right? Sure. So so we're in it for the spirit of it. And that's that's what we're kind of taking to the public is that idea. Yeah, it's wonderful. And I think, uh, you know, I was mentioning before we got on the air, um, you know, th- this show does not shy away from the boring side of architecture, what <laughs> a lot of people would say is the boring side of architecture, because I think it's it's actually really uh, interesting if, if you think about it in a certain way, because it's, it's really where the rubber meets the road of a lot of these things and where a lot of the kind of power structures that we intuitively react against um, live. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm curious uh, how the process of realization 
um, of this has gone for you? Like, how, like how did you start shaping this um, as a reality? Have there been any roadblocks? Um, you know, you mentioned sort of some of the practical aspects, but I, it's more. absolutely interesting. I think yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know what the rest <laughs> of the audience is going to be, but, I, but this project has been. Uh, like nothing I've ever worked on in my life, you know, uh, even going back to, you know, the, the highly theoretical education days, right? Yeah. So it's it's no small feat floating uh, a helium balloon shaped like a pig in a canyon that's, that's, a, that's a weather canyon, right? Yeah. So there's a lot of wind through there. Uh, these things are massive. They have – you can calculate the lift on them from the weight of the, the skin to the, you know, what the helium lift is. So you have to figure out how to float this thing and control it in mild to medium winds. That's right. So we knew we couldn't tether it permanently on in the water also. Hmm. So we couldn't use the buoys that we represented in the initial renderings. So we decided the way to go was to use a, a barge, a temporary platform. So we use a construction barge just like is in front of many of the, the high rises that are going up along the river in front of the Apple Store right now. Yeah. Uh, so we would use that. Uh, we'll weld anchor points to the surface and then we've had our structural engineer which is um, a good friend Magruder structures here in Chicago uh, design a triangulation system that we can use to tether these things so that they are held tightly in place yeah so essentially all the balloons will be anchored tail to nose together and then you have a triangulated system that gives them a broad footprint and then we have a rigging system that will allow them to rise up you know, kind of in a single motion. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, wow. it's, uh, there's, there's some great legacy stories. And one of the things that uh, I, I don't know if you knew uh, that, that came out of the first press release is a gentleman by the name of Sean Evans reached out to us. And uh -huh. Sean Evans is the visual director for Roger Waters of Pink Floyd. <laughs> wow. uh, and he said, uh, you know, uh, Roger thinks this is a pretty cool project. And uh, they sent us digital models of the pig. So go ahead and utilize this. So we updated our renderings with the Pink Floyd pig. I mean, this is the famous iconic pig that flew above the Battersea Power Station in London in 1976. Uh, so as we went along uh, and worked with Roger's manager and a variety of other people, they put us in touch with a fabricator in Oxfordshire, England, that creates these and for them, yeah. and they've given us use to create them. So we're allowed to make four of them, exact replicas uh, from the original, uh, it's called algae is the name of the, the original pig. <laughs> and uh, so we've got that, that fabrication piece, sorting that all out. There's the scare, and the reason you really get diligent with your engineering on this is the original algae, it was a two, three day photo shoot that they did. So they have the first day where they hang the pig or they float the pig between two of the towers, and uh, they didn't like the weather conditions. So they had hired a marksman to be on site. So if this thing got away, they're going to shoot it down. No kidding. <laughs> so that was the plan. Well, they decided to come back and shoot the next day, but the marksman didn't come back, and the pig did get loose. So oh this gosh. thing gets up in Heathrow's airspace at 30,000 <laughs> feet, and it shuts the airport down or a segment of the airport. And it's, this balloon floats out into this, the south of England and is found in the field, you know, days later. So, <laughs> so that's a pretty famous episode. And we don't want to, uh, we don't want to go yeah. there. You know? So our, uh, we've built a lot of things into this. We know that uh, we've designed it with a PVC that is, uh, can take punctures and the, uh, the balloons won't split or shatter. So they'll stay afloat if they get punctured. Um, 
just a lot of things that had to be yeah, thought about. That's fantastic. Well, uh, when when do you think we can expect to see this um, gracing our river? We've we've had a couple of meetings with the city, and we're still working with the city on a number of things. This is the kind of project that just doesn't come before them very frequently, so it left a lot of departments scratching their head. <laughs> you know, everybody kind of smiles at you, and then sure. they're like, "Well, uh, categories this fall into?" Yeah. So uh, what we're doing is we've kind of petitioned for a late. August, early September, Saturday morning kind of launch. Fantastic. So one morning or yeah. one day. That's great. Well, and I have to imagine, you know, uh, Chicago's uh, sort of famous with the building department and everything for being kind of labyrinthine. But I think, uh, I, I suspect that our um, even most cynical bureaucrats are um, kind of perhaps in their soul of souls eager to get this one through. Uh, one would like to think so, yeah. I'm not going to speculate, but I would like to think so. Yeah, cool. And um, so, yeah, then the last thing is, is how, how are you funding this? Because I imagine, you know, when you talk about consultants and, and even, you know, the fabrication can't be cheap. So uh, how, how is that piece of the puzzle coming together for you? We're, there are many things we're going to have to pay for. Barges, we're going to pay for security, we're going to pay all the city fees and permits. We're going to have to pay to have the balloons fabricated, shipped. There's a variety of things that we have to pay. Uh, we're collecting money through a GoFundMe site and also through our website. The bulk of the, the things coming in have come through our website at this point. So yeah. it's uh, we've we've had great, great, uh, you know, people have been so generous to donate. And what we've said all along is that we're taking nothing from this. Uh, yeah. Anything, if for some reason the project doesn't go forward, or it just becomes technically impossible or something happens, all the proceeds go to a series of six charities that are specified on our website. That's great. And uh, yeah, and then for, for listeners' information, what's the website? The website is, it's as easy, uh, flyingpigsonparade.org. Wonderful. All right. Um, well, Jeff Roberts, thanks again for joining us. Um, and I really, I really hope uh, we can have you back on the show uh, in the fall and, and we can have a recap of how things are going. <laughs> I look forward to it. Awesome. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> Thank Buildings you. on Air will be back in just a few minutes. Welcome back to Buildings on Air. I'm your host, Kiefer Dunn, and uh, I'm here with Hamza Hassan and Shoda Vashkamatse. And uh, these are two of my oldest friends, uh, two of the smartest people I know. And uh, Shoda is a repeat guest. We've had two repeat guests today, which is great. Um, he joins that uh, elite crown. And uh, I, I want to talk to you guys about technology and architecture. So I think the whole time that we are going through architecture school, you know, I, I was a huge Luddite. I always had a T-square and a drafting board, um, and you guys were hammering away with code and uh, Rhino models, um, which is for the non-architectural audience, just a, a 3D modeling software. Um, and and yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm just curious to talk with you guys about it, because we, we were talking earlier about um, this article of, uh, that came out about Elon Musk, right, and uh, some of his proposals uh, for autonomous vehicles and, and him reimagining the future of our cities, talking about how we need a, like, beautiful solar panel so people will put it on their roofs and, and things like this. And I, I think you guys talk about technology and uh, its potentials for architecture and the city in a kind of different way. So um, I... I 
I guess to kick off the conversation, yeah, like what what is it about like this sort of technological discourse that seems like it's just floating over our heads and bombarding our consciousness all the time that you find either good or pernicious or would like to see changed? So uh, I guess I'll start. Um, you know, it's weird to talk about technology in architecture simply because it seems to be replacing a lot of the things that we kind of considered um, uh, partly the product of our labor, but also partly the things that we really designed. Um, you know, one of the biggest problems with architecture right now, just overall, is that less and less people are taking notice of their space. The more they look down at the space that's on their five-inch screen in their hands, um, so on a first level, for me, technology is kind of warping architecture on that kind of a basic media experience. You know, if, uh, say 20th century French arcades were a type of media, which some people have very much argued. Um, I think now we're getting to the point where it's uh, getting weird that technology is changing how we make architecture, yet no one's really taking notice because of the other types of technology kind of distracting us from that. Yeah, that's interesting. Shoda? I think it's kind of compounded by um, maybe like the more general question of like what people think it is that architects do and sort of where um, like the enthusiasm for those uh, like kind of popular like innovations or sort of uh, like pop cultural aesthetic choices comes from. Um, and I, I think like, you know, if, if there's like a lot of energy and kind of um, investment towards like the the like the proper high end right like what we're like the high tech that we're seeing like from silicon valley and like which in the past would have been sort of engineering marvels and kind of uh like products of like technology at large right um which uh, you know i think i think if you intersect those with like what is actually architectural technology it becomes problematic because like hamza said it comes down to media and like um what whatever the sort of emphasis on like the beautiful solar panel or like um the the architecturalized version of something that's not necessarily architectural which is like uh you know it's been like innovations in computing uh those things don't actually like matter to us on a level other than like what their kind of representational and like mediatic consequences are so if uh you know if architects jobs is to um like to sort of solve the engineering problems and kind of do the math and like do all of the things that we don't actually do but maybe uh, kind of come to us and sort of uh, impute themselves upon our work, uh, you know, th th then we're in the situation where, like, a lot of these, uh, uh, like, technologies of, like, construction and, uh, like, infrastructure and all, all of this stuff that, like, actually determines the material consequences of architecture, like, arrive to us and are out of our hands. But what is in our hands is kind of the media technologies that we have to work with and, like, the questions of, like, what's aestheticized and, like, what is uh, like what is determined by the technology and what's like represented by it? Yeah, I think what you're kind of hinting at here is this uh, bifurcation between like building technology um, and kind of all of the the home of the future inventions that were constantly. Um, put in front of us and the tools that we use to like actually make and design architecture. And those things are related because I, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, what you're suggesting is that 
the tools that we have uh, for production are kind of creating these fantasy worlds of building technology. Um, and you guys know one of the things I'm fond of saying is like, hey, like newness is not a new thing, right? <laughs> like the mm -hmm. idea of newness is not new. And, you know, we look back at kind of building technology and, you know, they had automated diners in the 1950s, right? And all of a sudden, you know, you come back and McDonald's is like, hey, we're going to make an automated restaurant, right? And, and architects are kind of seeing this as like some sort of future. But, you know, the idea of a driverless car has been around forever. I mean, sure maybe we're closer to realizing it now but um, there's a way that these kind of myths of technological progress are kind of we, we really believe them like it kind of comes becomes like a religion almost um, and and I, I'm, I'm always skeptical of uh, how how realistic they are um, so before we circle back into like the you know how, how technology impacts the way that architects work, I'm wondering if you can sort of talk about that a little bit. Um, I, I think like that that question of progress is like kind of what's at the heart of it because you know if if we were like excited about the same things in the '60s as we are now or in the '40s or the '50s, um, if it's uh, uh, like I think a lot of the conversation around. Um, like these uh, vertically integrated sort of uh, bottom-up like smart cities and kind of um, yeah, uh, like the built environment as a product of a tech company rather than as a product of like a cultural expression. Um, what it comes down to for architecture, I think, is that we, you know, for our purposes, it doesn't matter that the like reality of an automated restaurant is like maybe slightly closer at hand because like the architectural problems with it today are the same that they would have been at any other time, uh, specifically like, how we sort of uh, engage a social experience with it and how we kind of manifest it within uh, the, like the cultural project that we're trying to represent or that I, I think, you know, that can either be us pushing it or like us responding to one. Yeah, I think the three of us kind of agree um, to some extent that technology and say culture or the social um, system are kind of on, uh, or social reality are kind of on opposite sides because um, you know, you asked about, you, you, you're asking about effectively how technology can um, change the way in which we live. And, you know, it does kind of because things, there are more things, there are faster things, there are ways in which, you know, the, ex the human experience seems to have changed in the past 50, 100,000 years. Um, and you and I have been, I have had many debates on this. I think that there is such a thing as change and that there are changes happening all the time. But when you look at the basic fundamental reality that we have, it's that, you know, there's still such a thing as class society. There's still such a thing as um, exploitation, um, especially for profit. And when you look at what tech companies are doing, they're pretty much doing what's always been done. This time they're using, say, technology rather than, you know, relying on some kind of external power. Um, whether it's divine right or say uh, free will, whatever the Western intellectual project has been in the past. Um, you, I mean, putting it simply, it's that the relations are have multiplied with greater complexity, but the overall sum of the relations is still the same reality we had before. Yeah. 
Yeah, so it's uh, it's funny to bring up uh, sort of class society and everything because I think the Silicon Valley rhetoric that I find to be especially pernicious is that the technological solutions that they're proposing are solutions to like the deep societal problems um, as opposed and and that just seems. Uh, like incorrect <laughs> to be blunt about it. Um, you know, every, every so often someone comes along and it's like, uh, you know, I mean, even Marshall McLuhan, who's a theorist that we kind of look back to as, as someone who is incredibly well-meaning, you know, his idea was that television is going to create a kind of global village, right? That will bring people together and bring them closer and, and um, you know, have a positive impact on the world. And, and I think we look back on that and we're like, dude, what, what are you talking about, <laughs> right? Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I don't know uh, how, how to deal with these questions because they, they also seem so big, right? So, like, technology also just seems like just this giant concept that's weighing on us. And, and you guys use it, and, and maybe this is how we come back to the, how technology changes the way we work because that is a, a much more real way of how all of these things are meeting the ground. It's, it's less this kind of monolithic concept that's supposedly changing everything and, and um, closer to home. So I, I'm, I'm curious, like, how do you use technology? Like, right? I mean, I, I know kind of you guys have these intellectual projects that are about leveraging it for good, uh, especially Shoda, um, with your kind of mapping projects. So I'm, I'm curious if you could talk about that for a moment. Um, I, I think to like tie that kind of uh, like abstract notion of like what technology is doing and where it's coming from, like to maybe like our production and like the things we're trying to like represent. The 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 the, the issue is that like for McLuhan, kind of it fell apart when uh, you know it became really clear that like all of these computing technologies didn't have sort of a neutral sort of cybernetic basis, but they were kind of cultural expressions themselves of the people uh, like propagating them and like the institutions that supported it. And, you know, if, if we like extend that to what's going on now, it's, uh, it's, it's a matter of uh, like, do these things like neutrally resolve these social issues or like, do they actually uh, work much more kind of, uh, uh, insidiously within sort of other power structures and like other projects uh, that they're sort of tangential to. Um, and, and then like bringing that kind of specifically to architecture, it's a question of like, you know, how much of that ends up in our sort of sphere of control or like within the space of the technologies that we can actually use. Right. Um, and I think that's really important for production because it gets into everything from uh, the sort of like uh, the world that we see, you know, in terms of like the the media that we look at and like the maps that we read and like the the sort of uh, combined agency like of all of our like news and like images and like aesthetic uh, conceptions. Uh, but on the other hand, it's like how we like represent the things we want to make, whether that's kind of construction documentation or if it is like a rendering that uh, is meant to sort of mobilize a lot of things and oftentimes does. And I think um, to follow up on what Shoda is talking about, you know, the basic premise of technology and architecture is we can do things faster, more accurately, and at a reduced cost because, you know, we're not spending the time hand drafting. And then if we have to make a correction, fix that thing, you know, if it's on the computer, it's on the screen, there's, you know, your one control Z away from fixing things. Um, that being said, you know, I think that there's this two-faced um, uh, visage 
for software and architecture and software in general, really. It's that you have to kind of institutionalize the big products that all the firms are using, the ones that cost, you know, say thousands of dollars a month for a firm to run and operate. But you get your return on investment because it's something that works. There's good bug support. But then there's stuff, especially things that Shoda does, which are more open source, so to speak, or things that are more kind of based on hacking, which, yeah, like a lot of the mapping technologies that Shoda uses probably can't really be used in a firm in such a way that you might generate um, an expected uh, profit margin. Um, and so that's the thing that's actually kind of libera liberating about technology and why I think that technology is kind of subject to larger social issues is that, you know, something good can come from it and also something totally banal and everyday and very kind of um, reactionary, so to speak. Well, and I think that also weighs on the, the kind of uh, like uh, reputation of like these architectural representational tools as uh, as something that sort of innately um, alienates us from like the material and the know-how and yeah. the kind of practical questions. What, of do you, what do you mean by that exactly? Uh, like I, I think you know, part of it's like we don't want to pursue this thing because it's not profitable. Because like we don't know how we can, uh, how do you build a point cloud? Like how do we like take this weird mesh and like uh, use that to inform you know how we're gonna make the stack of cinder blocks come together into like a shelter? Right. And and you know like on one level it's really abstracted, but I think that uh, that ignores the sort of uh, mechanics and like the like the agency of the information that's that's like embedded in these technologies that we use but aren't necessarily accessible to the architect as the end user right so I like a lot of what Hamza is talking about um, the kind of uh, consumer oriented and consumer is like a really weird term in this case because the consumer at the end of the day is like the professional architect in the office right and not the public has like a <laughs> very special relationship to the software that you know at once they have to be able to use it but they also uh, use them in kind of very constrained and uh, streamlined ways to basically facilitate uh, like the task at hand. Right. And you know that 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 I think is something that's necessary to like maintain the practice, but it's also completely at odds with um, with like the larger ambitions and like the larger questions of like what the technology can do. And and you know it's it might be a matter of uh, sort of it, it's a question of like rethinking software, but it's also uh, maybe something as simple as like. Do you do you like know software, or do you kind of think through the right. like the problem that you're trying to get at? Well, I think I think in a more direct way, what you're suggesting is that like, you know, like these these things are tools, right? And um, as such, like they are themselves inert, right? Like you can use a hammer in a million different ways, but the structure of uh, society and economy like shape the way that we use these things. And if we live in a society that's sort of like all about the bottom dollar, um, you know, oftentimes to the detriment of the social good, then the then these tools that we have are going to be used in that same way. Right, and and, and the alienation comes in when you sort of are. Uh, you know, taught more or less that like you can only hammer things in using this hammer, but you know, absolutely nothing else will do the job. Right. And you but know, then, like, but then there's also this problem of aestheticization, which kind of um, talks to uh, the academic side of architecture and say capital A high architecture, the weird things that architects are making. The uh, as the Chinese, I think, prime minister called it, the weird buildings. Yes. Um, the there's this one thing that it's like the most hilarious trope in architecture schools, which is the Voronoi grid. Um, 
And for those that don't know, which I'm, I'm assuming most people don't know, it's pretty much just a way to I map don't know. <laughs> points. It's pretty much a way to map points. So if you have a, a bunch of random points on a piece of paper, what's the largest boundary you can get in between them without them like encroaching? So it's all about calculating midpoints and you end up coming up with some like kind of random cool looking pattern, almost like glass breaking, cracking in a surface. Um, that's what it kind of looks like. And so, of course, architects have used that to make crazy cool forms. And then they post-rationalize and say it's got ecological implications and structural rationality to it. The truth is, Voronoi was never intended for that. You know, this is a technology, so to speak. It's a mathematical equation that had its primary use in charting epidemics and I think, London. And, you know, to kind of part of the problem is that architects allow themselves to be alienated from the actual potentiality of the tool. So rather than taking Voronoi and saying, look, there's aesthetic possibility, what if you took the Voronoi and started mapping, say, violence uh, within the streets of your city, and you started using that to start developing, say, some kind of master plan, or maybe not a master plan, but a way to interject architecturally, spatially, maybe even just in a civic sense, you know? I think one thing that architects undervalue themselves, and they don't look at technology to help them out, is that if you want to create some sort of uh, intervention in a social sense, not just a formal one, you can use technology to help you out. You know That's why in architecture school, you spend so much time diagramming and doing what we call site context, which is analyzing the environment around where you're working. You can also use that to say, read the newspaper or read um, reports of a particular type of incidents uh, in the news and then, you know, use the technology to help you focus your architecture rather than allow your architecture to do something that just looks cool. Yeah, uh, yeah I think within that there's like an enterprise somewhere that I think we're all interested in, um, you know, even if it's from from the, the Luddite perspective, Keeper. Yes. But that, that like the, that the technology, um, the, the, there's been this kind of uh, like coupling of technology and formal generation. Uh, which, you know, it, it was the product of, uh, like, you know, innovations in computer graphics and, like, a lot of things in the 80s and 90s that architects could suddenly get their hands on that kind of became uh, easy ways to generate form. Like and, uh, building form for our listeners who might not be architects. Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, the, 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 the shapes of the weird buildings uh, that Amza uh, referred to. <laughs> uh, but but, but the, the kind of larger idea with it, uh, with what I'm trying to say, is that the the technology that we've used to to sort of make make these shapes um, doesn't necessarily have to be limited to making shapes. So you know it's uh, it's it's not so much that we use technology to make something that we couldn't make otherwise, or to make something that looks like we couldn't make it otherwise. Hmm. But it's that we you know the the, the technology um, lets us read the information in a new way and kind of read our own work and propose uh, interventions in a different way, which you know from the outside might look like it was done a hundred years ago. And you know it, you know it could have. Yes. And there's no reason that that's kind of less sophisticated than the things we're doing now. Yeah. Well, uh, that's all the time we have for this discussion, guys. Thanks. <laughs> we could talk about this for hours, and I'm sure we will. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So th uh, thank, thanks, uh, thanks for coming for on. Having us on yeah. And so you guys are listening to Buildings on Air here on Lumpen Radio. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Welcome back to Buildings on Air, and we're here with Will Martin. Well, actually, you guys are beam beaming in from far-flung corners of the USA, but Will Martin and uh, uh, Kay Silla, and uh, these are some of my uh, comrades from the architecture lobby, um, and recently, the three of us um, just went down to the American Institute of Architects convention, 
in Orlando, and it's a very, very big convention, 16,000 people. Um, you know, considering how many architects there are in the United States, you know, roughly like 100,000 licensed architects, uh, it's, it's a fairly substantial convention. Um, and uh, there's lots to talk about. Um, you know, even if you're kind of not an architect and, and you're listening into the show, um, it's, it's very curious to hear uh, how these giant professional associations that represent so many architects um, are working for the public good or, I think, as we'll uh, discuss, not working for the public good. Um, so, Will, how, how's it going? Introduce yourself. Tell us about Will. Howdy, uh, Chicagoland. Uh, good to be on the show. Thanks, Kiefer. Um, my name is Will Martin. I'm beaming in from uh, sunny, beautiful Denver, Colorado. Um, <clears throat> been working with uh, the great people at Architecture Lobby for a while now. Um, a designer out here in Denver. Uh, lived and worked in New York City for a while, uh, abroad for a while, and uh, yeah, happy to be on the show and talk about um, the uh, the great discipline we have and uh, some of the, the less great things about the profession. So thanks for having me on. Yeah. And what's going on, Kay? Hey, Kujisula. I'm coming in from Los Angeles, California. Um, I've been with the lobby for over a little over three years now, and i um, Great. I'm a designer and I'm just happy to be advocating for architects and architecture. Awesome. Yeah. So uh, we were at this convention for three days. It was 100 degrees, which was a shock to my system. Um, the Florida is so bright. I don't know. I'm surprised everyone <laughs> still has eyes who lives there. Uh, Kuja, you're from there, of course. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. But I, I, I'm curious. Uh, it was a little hot. It was very hot, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious sort of like uh, maybe uh, one, Will, I know you were, you were sort of writing an overview of the convention. Maybe you can just give us the kind of broad strokes of, um, you know, what 16,000 architects talk about and do when they get together. Uh, yeah, so uh, as one experiences the uh, the discipline from within the institution of the academy, that's usually the first introduction one gets, and that is a very different introduction than one might receive uh, attending one of these conventions. I was struck um, when we attended uh, last year in Philadelphia, uh, the look and feel of that many architects getting together was not quite what I expected. And um, that's not to <laughs> what you, not to say that it's a it's not it's not a multiplication effect where it's it doesn't feel like you would expect um, you know the a cliched version of an architect to be but on mass it has a, it has a very different feel um, and maybe it's just professional conventions in general but it's a lot of people rushing around awkwardly trying to speak to people who they might look up to um, and doing a lot of the rituals which are supposed to maintain the profession, whether it's getting um, continuing education uh, credits, which is a part of our the maintenance of our licensure, or um, you know getting those those networks going with uh, you know manufacturer or you know material uh, representatives or, or whomever in the uh, in the profession. So it's a it's an awkward uh, sort of group who are not always the most socially uh, capable, but they they all get together and they uh, rush around to these over 800 sessions or something like that, 500. Um, Session, so it was it was a bit crazy, but it's 
it's a it's a interesting time for sure and um a lot of networking is supposed to be had and um if you're along the fringes it's a good place to sort of take stock of what's going on in the professional iteration of uh, the discipline so yeah and uh this year of course there were many um keynotes and i remember um it wasn't all that long ago that there was a minor outrage um about who the keynotes were uh when they initially announced the keynote presenters and there was there were a lot of them um it was all it was all men (laughs) um um and that was not the case in the end of course um there were keynotes from uh Amy Cuddy um and then uh Francis Carey Michael or what was the Michael um ooh, I forget the guy's name from Ford uh, ooh, Mike Yes, Michael Ford. Uh, yes, Michael Ford, the hip hop architect, and also the uh, uh, Michael Murray—that's his name—from uh, Mass Architects and Design, and of course uh, Michelle Obama um, in her first appearance as a private citizen. Um, so that that was something else, and um, yeah, I, I'm I'm curious, uh, uh, Kuja, if, what what you made of that. Um, well, you know, you I thought yeah. I thought the whole um, I thought the whole presentation was really nice and very well put together, um, especially since they were um, awarding a fellow African American architect. So it was really nice presentation, um, but I did think it was kind of interesting that they kind of almost made her represent. Um, you know, for black America. And it's kind of like, you know, when you're a first lady, you represent all of America, not just black America. So it was, it was nice presentation. And I thought it was nice that she was, um, um, it was her first appearance. And also it, it put a spotlight on the practice of architecture. So it it was good, but, um, you know, what do you say? It was the first lady, you know? Right. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, I think uh, it felt like a sort of concerted effort on behalf of the AIA um, to, you know, try to appear very woke, right? Um, and and sort of hip to these issues that the profession has faced forever. Um, you know, issues of how do we work for the social good? Because architects, you know, in spite of talking about it all the time, do a very poor job of actually putting that uh, t- into practice. And the same thing, architecture has a very dire demographic crisis, as we all know. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a single percentage point of, of architects who are uh, African-American. So, it, I mean, I mean, it was nice to see those those issues foregrounded, but I but I guess my question from the convention is really like, are they are they putting into place uh, policies and actions that will address those concerns in a meaningful way, or are they just kind of um, you know putting putting people who are fantastic up on a stage, um, um, which is which is great, but to me it, it doesn't seem like maybe enough, right? Um, there's a question of like more representation is is good and part of the solution, but I guess I I, I don't know and I question if it is like the end all be all um, of of, uh, of of what the AIA can be doing to solve these issues. Yeah, I don't know. I thought it was very interesting. There was one um, snippet that they presented where it said something like, oh, AIA is advocating for laws that, um, you know, 
affect architects and architectural practice, but then at the same time, it, they didn't ever mention what laws they were advocating for, weren't right. very specific about that. So it was just kind of like a very vague statement because there's a lot of things that affect architecture, you know, on the local and um, national level. So, right. yeah, I don't know. It would have been nice to have, um, nice if they actually um, let people know what those laws are that they're actually fighting for. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, I, I've been writing a piece on this as well. And you know, one of the issues that we came across a lot was there's there's a there's a very real tension in the field where, uh, it, I mean, it felt like the whole conference was about the national AIA leadership selling us on um, the social good that architecture can do and um, all of the good that the AIA is doing, right? As, as, a, as opposed to, um, like, and we know, we know the social good that architecture can do, but um, I guess what I would like to see, and I think what you're referring to with some of these laws, is how we remove the structural barriers, the economic barriers that are in place that keep most architects from being able to realize that mission, right? I, I think for me, that is the substantive sort of issue that we're talking about, right? I don't think people get into architecture like without wanting to put something positive into the world. You know, <laughs> I think I think that's why exactly. most yes. of us are all here. <laughs> yeah. um, but the issue is for, for most of us, especially young architects, it's increasingly difficult to do so. Um, um, and, and on that score, I, I, I wonder what the AIA is doing. Um, and, and Will, maybe you can kind of clue us in on some of the things you heard in sessions uh, that, that maybe are kind of referring to that um, or how the sessions were, were, were going. Yeah, I mean, just in, in terms of th this, this part of the discussion, I think the how heavy-handed they tried to address these issues, which they've managed to almost completely ignore from a substantive standpoint for um, you, you know, almost 50 years now, um, since it was really first uh, publicly brought brought to their attention. Um, sadly, it was even it even took uh, you know th that in '68. But that they haven't been making substantive changes, uh, regardless of intent, whether it's um, making the the profession viable from um, standing up for fees of architects, allowing them to um, be profitable and attract uh, talent, whether it's from, I mean, people who need to move into professions need to pick professions which will provide um, a living wage. And if architecture keeps failing to do that, regardless of what socioeconomic background students come from, um, you have a real issue of you know having a viable profession. So you can't do any good in the world because no one um, with any talent or skill can uh, you know choose it as a viable profession if they have um, a living wage as a primary concern, which is everyone. Um, and particularly people who are uh, coming from, you know, disadvantaged communities. So, you know, until they're able to address issues of um, compensation in a substantive way, I feel like it's just going to be an ongoing challenge um, to, to really attract um, the, the right demographic that really should be in the profession. Um, and it can't just be people... Uh, of privilege who come with um, a lot of money that they can uh, bankroll several years of uh, 
of working um, to try and you know get their portfolio or whatever. So it's a it's a real challenge, and I don't think they're doing a, su a sufficient job for anyone in the profession, and particularly those who would be least um, you know least advantage to come in given the financial strain that it takes to uh, become a part of the profession. Yeah. And uh, just a reminder for folks who are listening, you're listening to WLPNLP Chicago, 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio. And we're talking about the AIA convention here. Uh, and uh, so uh, I'm, I'm curious, uh, uh, Kay, you have talked a lot um, and you're a big champion at a lot of the sessions for understanding how these kind of laws that govern compensation and the working conditions of architects um, are really poor and how they might be uh, uh, impacting our ability to work for uh, the communities that we want to work for. Um, I think it's probably surprising to folks to hear, uh, you know, that architects are concerned about making a living wage. Um, but but that that is that is real. But I'm wondering if you could speak to maybe some of those issues um, and and kind of delve into some of the specifics about. Um, how our value as architects and advocating for that can help us be better uh, advocates and champions um, and partners with uh, the communities that we're a part of and, and we serve. Well, I think, you know, a lot of it has to do with just like what Will was saying is that AAA isn't really advocating for um, or they're not really working towards um you know, the fees and wages and until they address that issue, it's going to be something that architects are never going to be able to overcome. And um, it's kind of interesting because if we go back to the sessions that they had at the convention, there were a few sessions that kind of seemed as though they were beginning to touch on those issues certain um, sessions that had to do with um, breakthrough strategies to get the fees you deserve. Right. So that would be something where, you know, you're in that room and you see a lot of architects in that room. And it, it was kind of sad to see, but you had a mix in it. I'd say a third of the room was from large firms. A third of the room was from medium sized firms. And then a third of the room was from small firms. So you had a nice mix of architects, but everyone was in there under the same, you know, um, train of thought that they were going to get to come and learn something about how to get paid what you deserve to be paid. And it's kind of interesting because, you know, the first thing people say when you tell them that you're an architect is they're like, oh, you must make a lot of money. So, you know, that is a misconception with the general public. But then at the same time, architects are very much aware of the fees that were paid. But um, it was kind of sad when you're in this room and everyone's waiting to hear, oh, yes, how do I get paid what I'm deserved to be paid? But then when you get, you, the longer you sit in this room and you're given suggestions like, oh, lower your scope of services. And um, if, you lower your, if you lower your scope of services, you're able to lower your fees that you're charging your customer. And then it's like, well, how are you able to do that if you have something called a standard of care where you can't just lower your scope of services to get fees that you deserve because, you know, then you're not doing your client a service any longer. So, yeah. um, you know, it's, it's, it's like Will says, until they actually give us some, or until they actually go and fight for this fee issue that the, the profession has with the uh, consent decrees, we're not going to be able to actually, there's not going to be much that can help us be better architects. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's an important yeah. point to bring up, um, and and 
I don't know. I you know it's 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 curious. I think for uh, to to draw those connections, but it's very real um, because uh, I I think about it in one of two ways, right? In in the AIA's sort of framing of social impact architecture and design, uh, oftentimes it is sort of like doing charity work, right, for uh, people who are in extremely disadvantaged positions, right, um, um, yeah. which is great. Um, but, you know, even if you're doing that kind of charity work on a pro bono basis, right, like uh, yeah. the conversation about fees does come into the picture. It's kind of like a, a wealth redistribution in effect, right? If you're able, yeah. to, if you're able yeah. to, um, um, you know, charge a client who can pay uh, uh, more, then you can take on more of these projects. Um, but I, but I, and I also think that there's a, a version of a future where, um, you know, these distinctions fade away entirely um, and we're able to, like, serve clients and make a living um, um, at the same time, regardless yeah. of who those clients are, right? Um, but, mm -hmm. Will, Will I'm, I'm curious yeah. to hear you weigh in on this. I mean, that Kuja. kind of, yeah. um, okay. Yeah, well, that kind of goes back to um, where they have a session about like 10 cardinal rules for talking to non-architects about architecture, you know, so I think it has a lot to do with us educating the public as well, us ourselves as architects on the on the profession, and then it helps people to understand our value, hmm. you know, so it's, it's, it kind of is interesting how they have sessions like that, but at the same time, you know, talking to people about architecture is not going to be just about the sessions that they included. So I don't know how much detail um, we're, we can go into about what they included in that, but um, maybe that's one of the things that would help us too, is also to educate the public, which yeah. I think they were trying to do, but did not. Yeah. Will, do you want to weigh in on any of these things? Yeah. I've, I mean, just in terms of, um, and this is an education that, uh, people in the profession go through, and so it's obviously important for the public at, at large. But the understanding that um, the the profession of architecture is under um, you know strict regulation from Sherman Sherman antitrust laws, um, and one of the reasons why the AIA um, is so uh, squeamish around talking about fees is because it got hit with several Sherman antitrust. Uh, uh, law litigations um, at, at two different points in its history, which basically legally now says that the architects through the AIA cannot speak about um, fees because it's seen as collusion. Now, most people see antitrust laws as trying to break up these uh, rapacious mega uh, corporations, which are extremely exploitative. Um, but not the, a smaller monopoly, which is given to a licensed professional uh, with the explicit goal of um, life safety, um, mm. the, the, basically the, um, the care of the public at, it, at the heart of its goal, at the heart of its mission. So it's an awkward position, and that's, that's something that is not well understood by professionals uh, or um, you know, the general public. So that's an important distinction to make, and I think if we want to serve the public better, we have to understand the frameworks which uh, either allow us or disallow us to do that. And I think that we see um, the structure of the AIA and its um, incapacity legally to address it as one of the um, as one of these these major these major barriers. I also wanted to uh, mention another uh, misconception, which is uh, the notion that 
architecture is involved in everything. Actually, uh, of the built environment globally, it only touches like seven percent or something like that. So there's a lot um, there's a lot left on the table um, in terms of the built environment, which could be affected if we were to um, expand the way that we think about and uh, deliver our services um, with that public mission. Yeah. Yeah, right. I mean, I think uh, to p- put it, put that same idea in a different way, um, you know, the reason why we have a license is because what we do is uh, uh, impactful to the health, safety and welfare of the public at large. Right. That is why we are licensed. Um, and so I think, uh, yeah, our, our, our clients are also the public always in every in every architecture project that we work on, because we're stamping those drawings using the power of our architectural license. Um, oh, some of you guys have a honky neighbor. We might, we might, uh, laying on the horn somewhere. Um, but that's okay. Um, so I, I'm curious though, uh, if you have any silver linings from the convention. Um, I mean, you know, it's, I think it's easy to be critical of the AIA, um, for good reason. Um, but you know, were, were there any things there that, that kind of gave you, um, some hope? Uh, for the profession or, um, you know, this largest professional organization uh, that we have as architects? Um, well, for me, um, I would say that I liked the sessions that they had because even though they didn't um, have enough substantial content to them um, that people could take away from, but um, I like that they're beginning to have these discussions, which kind of opens the door for maybe eventually the AIA will get a backbone and spine and decide that they're just going to fight this. Um, so that was one thing that was really promising. And then also, too, is just the fact that, like Will was mentioning, is that architects also need to ha- be educated about like some of the laws that are affecting us. Because I think you, if you don't know why you're in the situation that you're in, then you're not going to be able to overcome it. So that helps a lot. Um, so that to me, just in itself, was that the, the actual um, sessions that they were having this year seemed to highlight the idea that they're beginning to acknowledge that they have a problem that they need to address. Yeah. Will? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, being there and getting a chance to meet uh, motivated people from across the country who, for for whatever reason, um, are looking for an avenue to be advocates for the profession and are really passionate about the profession, is is great. And you know what, a lot of people there, um, you know, are very uh, ends driven and they see the AIA as the most efficient means to be a participant in trying to bring about change. Um, and I think sometimes, sadly, that effort is. Um, you know, poorly placed. Um, but that, that being said, it's really great to have a chance to talk to people and understand that, uh, some of the things that we might feel in our siloed experiences, um, day to day, uh, are more universal within the profession and therefore talking to each other, um, organizing together. Um, you know, there's a real, a real opportunity to build solidarity within the profession. Um, you know, if, if we can talk openly about some of the issues that really are affecting us. I mean, as a as a young professional, um, I, I see a lot of hope um, from the people who are in similar positions who might, uh, like me, have student debt and are, are looking for ways to organize around that and advocate for 
uh, a profession that um, can really serve the public, but also um, the the participants, um, the professionals themselves. So I think that's uh, that. You know, the the people meeting motivated people is always inspiring, and uh, so I think that's a a great a great thing and a reason when you get that many people together, you can really find some of those motivated people. Yeah, I mean, I I think we are we are in a lot of sessions, and and I think a lot of folks are just kind of, you know don't have a, a language almost to articulate some of these issues is I, is I think a big part of it. Um, because pretty much universally, all of the sessions that I attended were just a kind of panoply of buzzwords, right? It was um, lots of talk about like disruption and then like endless discussion about leadership, right? And it's like leadership of what leadership to what ends it was like you know we have to train the next generation of leaders so they can then go on to lead uh it was it was just filled with tautologies like that and you know you you wonder i i think uh and and will maybe this addresses what you're just raising to some degree um, if, if equipping architects with a more political language um, can help them to direct these problems more head on. Um, I, I, I don't know I, if that was your experience of the sessions as well. I don't know. Did you guys hear lots of buzzwords? What was your favorite buzzword? <laughs> um, yeah, I, you know, when you were saying that, Kiefer, I was thinking of... Uh, you know, uh, business school and the proliferation of business schools, um, which wasn't really a, a management and business wasn't really a discipline until, uh, you, know, rel- you know, relatively recently. And the, the question I, I always pose to those schools is um, the, you know, management of what for to what ends. And it's similar to what you see happening in uh, the architecture profession where um, these leaders are being, um, you know, sort of bred to lead and and lead what uh, for what ends, like you said. So I really do think it's a, an issue. And if we're not talking about values and really doubling down on the communication of values, um, something that I know um, was has been a direct challenge to the AIA recently through campaigns um, put on by the architecture lobby and other groups, which are, you know, we need to. Uh, clearly state our values and if we're not finding that the institution is um, leading you know creating a framework through which those values can be realized uh, it's not serving um, that population so we need to find other other means so I mean yeah we we need to ask about um, the means that will get us to the ends which are those essential values which um, you know groups like the architecture lobby and others are really uh you know, explicitly trying to communicate. Yeah. So um, I should mention that I'm joined in the studio by uh, the steward of our Chicago chapter of the Architecture Lobby, Skylar Moraine. How's it going, Skylar? Doing fine, thanks. Great. Good afternoon. Cool. So, uh, Skylar, you were not at the convention with the three of us, um, but I- I'm curious if from a distance, seeing the tweet storms and everything else that were going on, you had any kind of observations or uh, any questions for, for those of us who were in, in the throes of this 16,000-person beast of an event? Yes. Uh, right. I, I followed uh, primarily through uh, a couple dozen Twitter accounts that were... Uh, it was it was great to see when they would all blast the same quote simultaneously. <laughs> sure. Um, 
and I, I definitely picked up on a lot of these buzzwords that that you're talking about. I think my favorite, other than the the leadership creates leaders, was um, forms are informed. Um, <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Just, uh, like the vocabulary is just breaking down at such a rapid pace. Yeah. Um, yeah, um, and I'm I'm excited to have uh, you in the studio with us um, because I, I'm hope I'm hoping kind of in the last uh, ten or fifteen minutes of our discussion here we can we can start to talk about some of the ways in, in which substantial change might happen, right? So um, you know I, I think um, you know we we definitely want to be critical always, but um, you know we also want to be critical to an ends and and keep moving the ball forward on these things so i think part of that means working within these large institutions and also recognizing that there are complex beasts and and sort of being opportunistic about where we can uh, be involved as architectural activists in those institutions but also what we do as the architecture lobby or um, some of these like outside groups like uh, q space or architects or f architecture um, so yeah, I'm, I'm curious, Skylar, to hear from you what's going on in Chicago and uh, from uh, Will and uh, Kay about what um, you know maybe was hinted at during the convention that we can kind of latch on to. Uh, I don't know who wants to take it away first here. Um, maybe Skylar, you look like you're ready to go. Yeah, um, something that has been kind of simmering that I'm hoping to get back to this summer with our chapter is this discussion about uh, consenting labor relations mm. and this this struggle for people to fully comprehend the situation that they're in, where supposedly we are all uh, typically in some sort of an at-will relationship with our employer. Mm. Uh, but the realities uh, in terms of the student loans that many of us are left with, yeah. the difficulty of relocating for uh, new work, and the just general uh, sense of freedom within a workplace to argue for uh, what you do and don't feel comfortable doing yeah, uh, leaves so many of us at such a disadvantage that it's impossible to even have that kind of a conversation about are you really free to leave and do something else if right. you disagree or, or, or what, is the, what are the terms of consent? Yeah in an employer's employment relationship. Yeah, that's, I think that's an interesting way to frame it. And, um, you know, one of the reasons why we talk about sort of workers' power in relationship to architects, right, um, who, who at the end of the day are workers, right, even, even if they're relatively privileged ones in uh, most instances. Um, but it also reminds me, too, I forget who, what the, who the scholar is that writes about this, but they talk about how having a social safety net that, um, you know, can take care of these basic needs like health care and food and a, a basic living cost, like, uh, is immensely important to the cultural expression of any given society, right? The, right? the more you're able to, like, enter into these situations without having to worry about those things, um, the, the more you're able to enter into projects uh, on your own terms. Um, and the results are very en enriching um, for everyone, right? Not just uh, in terms of, you know, not having to worry about what happens if you break your arm or something. And this is a value that uh, is shared across uh, the entire profession among owners and uh, partners and principals as well. Mm. Uh, we have a, a much easier time, at least in our chapter, connecting with 
the struggles of the the younger architects in the community, but there are certain ways that I think it's it's really clear how those things benefit everyone in terms of uh, remaining competitive. Yeah. Uh, firm owners are always struggling to meet the needs of their employees right. without also creating a huge overhead for their office. So that kind of a network is beneficial to everybody. Yeah. And, and before I throw it back to uh, these guys here on, on Skype with us, I mean, I, I think that there's a there's a parallel to be or a difference from what was happening at the AIA convention and the way that we're talking about the social good right now. Because at the AIA convention, so much of it really was framed as a kind of charity of like, look at these like petite bourgeois architects who are going to um, provide free services to people in far from places um, and, and, you know, do something good. And like, to be clear, I'm not being critical of that because they're doing good things, right? But but ostensibly, ostensibly. But uh, I think that it's a very different thing to say, like, hey, we are like sort of being exploited as architectural workers by the same developer logics that are thriving off of inequality um, on on the scale of the city, but also the scale of the globe, right? Like these kind of like. Um, pernicious, toxic, like neoliberal, like uh, uh, political and economic relationships, like that hurts all of us. And instead of just viewing what we do as charity, if, if we see um, um, a commonality in, in our struggle, right, then, then that, that makes it um, the, the political possibilities of fighting against these things that go so much further beyond architecture, a, a much more uh, real possibility. Um, that, that's the way that I think about it anyway. I don't know if that sounds crazy. Sometimes I think it sounds crazy. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, to, to kick it back to these guys. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm curious, how do, how do we start to tackle these problems? What was, what, uh, you know, we talked about some of the silver linings, but maybe what opportunities came up, um, in the last week, um, that can help us sort of address these issues in a more substantive way? Um, well, um, go ahead, go ahead, Kay. Um, I think that one of the ways that we could do this is by working with the AIA, and I think you mentioned something like this before, Kiefer, is that if we could, you know, somehow find a way to um, work within, <laughs> from within, you know, it would be able, we'd be able to make a lot of changes, but, um, you know, um, you know, meeting some of the people that we met at the convention was kind of interesting because you met people that do like standards and codes for policies um, on the national level, you know, and it was interesting speaking with uh, those kind of people because you you then begin to think, at least for myself, I did, I was like, whoa, you know, so they really do work on things on a national level, but then it's like, it seems as though, the people in the city are left behind because there's a lot of things that change from state to state um, and, you know, legal wise. So, you know, the laws are changing from state to state and also from city to city and county to county. So there's a lot of loopholes that exist out there that I think that we should work on closing because it allows, you know, it allows for other people, other professionals within the AEC the architecture, engineering, and construction industry to be able to kind of do some of the jobs that we as architects do. Right. And I, it's not that I think that we're any short on the jobs. I just think that a lot of the jobs are being done by people that are not architects. Mm -hmm. And so if we could begin to work with AIA 
national and have them address some of those issues and close some of those loopholes, then I think that some of those jobs would come back to us because, you know, uh, we've talked about the employees and we've talked about the firm owners and about this continuous struggle to be able to have the jobs Mm -hmm. that um, allow us to practice and do good. But um, if those jobs are not being done by the actual professions that are professionals that are intended to do those jobs, then it's going to be this constant struggle, not only to get the fees once you get the job, but then just to get the job in and of itself. Right. So, um, yeah. Um, yeah. And before I just, before I kick it to Will, I think that's an interesting point um, about the kind of AIA functionaries, uh, because uh, there there is a kind of distinction, right, between the architects who get elected to AIA leadership and the kind of folks who make up the bureaucrats, the bureaucratic layer of the AIA at a national and a state level. And and those folks are so much more in tune with the kind of problems that we're discussing. And I think my, my speculation, I've been, I've been racking my brain trying to figure out why. And my speculation is, is because they have, uh, they're, they're so much closer to, to these laws and regulations that govern architectural practice. Um, and, and that's their kind of battleground and their territory. So they actually see that as, right. as not just this immutable fact that comes down from, um, you know, some god of codes uh, or, or, or laws, but, <laughs> but as something that we actually have agency to change, right? And, and that that's how these power relations work um, and, and how we'll ultimately change them. So I think that they, they, they see that and know it in a much more intimate way that, that helps them, you know, be so much more, uh, I don't know, uh, 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 eyes opened. Uh, but yeah, Will, I'm, I'm kicking it to you. What, what do you think the possibilities and horizons are for, for change? I do have a thought on that, but I also wanted to follow up um, that with this discussion. I had an interesting conversation recently with a landscape architect, a licensed landscape architect, and they have a similar association, the Association of Professional um, I guess it's or, uh, landscape professionals. I can't remember exactly what the acronyms are, but um, real fast, they had their licensure, licensure law sunsetting this year and they had all their ducks in a row and they needed to go to Congress and get it. Uh, I think it's a national level, so I'm not sure exactly how it differs from the AIA. Long story short, they go and um, they find out that another organization, which is not licensed, had been lobbying to basically discredit the licensure of landscape architects um, to essentially deregulate the uh, profession, saying that it wasn't allowing for adequate, uh, you know, uh, adequate, you know, competition among landscape designers. And when it went to the vote, it went right along party lines. So every uh, all all the Republicans voted to deregulate um, the profession of landscape architecture. Which would have meant that landscape architects would have lost their licensure, um, to all like completely. So it's mm-hmm. it's something that uh, there's politics to all of this, and the way that the rhetoric of co- competition and who's serving the p- profession, uh, sorry, who's serving the public and how um, is you know does need the tending to at uh, within the legislatures, whether it's local or federal. So that just a quick anecdote on that. Um, those things are real and these issues of regulations um, are real. From, from my perspective, the conversations I've been having since the uh, 
um, convention are around wage transparency. Mm -hmm. And it's a simple thing that people can advocate for within their firms and demand wage transparency. If there are no issues, great. You don't, it's not a problem. It's transparent. It's great. You can celebrate that. If there are issues, uh, parity among for gender or race, um, you know, everyone should know about that and firms should be willing to address that. Uh, another knock on effect is that uh, younger staff will understand their what the, the arc of the profession looks like and be incentivized to either have conversations about that arc and change things that they're not um, willing to or that, that aren't, um, you know, particularly appealing, like working for 20 years and getting, you know, 10,000 more dollars uh, for all of that experience, which is not too unlikely. Um, and then having a real conversation about value um, as a whole within the firm and then then moving that value out into the public again where you might be able to have um, a better opportunity to discuss the value um, and then convert that value into higher fees. So that seems to be a really actionable um, item which literally costs nothing um, except for um, you know some potentially awkward conversations which need to be had. Yeah. I think that's a really good practical thing to be advocating for. And I know, um, you know, we produced a pamphlet um, uh, that had had some more demands along similar lines. Um, and, and, you know, there's a kind of another arena um, in which we're, uh, as the architecture lobby, advocating for some of these things. And that is uh, um, a project that was just launched um, that is basically a certification program for firms that do have good labor practices and, um, you know, are, are working on these issues. Um, so that's very cool. Well, we have literally just a minute left, um, but I want to I want to go around um, the room, physical and digital, for some uh, last words. Um, okay, why don't you start us off with the first last word? Um, well, yeah, I just want to say that it was great attending the um, AAA convention, and it was nice to have met all the people that we met this year that are advocating for architects, and also, too, just to see that there are other agencies, not just here in the United States, but also abroad, that are trying to join forces and um, make architecture a stronger and well-known profession. Um, so I just wanted to throw, out, throw that out there. But there was also not just AIA present, but there was also the African Union of Architects that was there. Yeah. Um, I meant to mention that earlier. But um, yeah, so it's good to see that we're having a global awareness of architecture and the value of architecture worldwide. Yeah, that's great. Will? Um, one thing that really stuck with me uh, was something that Michelle Obama said, which was, uh, she was talking about um, inner city children in disadvantaged neighborhoods, but I think it applies more broadly. She said, uh, people know when you don't care. Mm. And I really have been internalizing that and trying to think about that in terms of the profession and the work that we do and the work that we say that we do. So really, um, you know, thinking about the things that we do care about and being really honest about what we're doing and, and if those two things align. So, um People know when, when, when you don't care. And so uh, if you care about things, which I believe a lot of architects do, right. make sure they align with your the actions. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a, a good shot across the bow of uh, the sty style over substance that we saw at the convention. Um, Skyler. Yeah, I thought what Will was saying about the, the professional licensure issue is interesting. Uh, and considering that we're in such a deregulation-friendly period, here in this country. Uh, it's unlikely, I think, for the life safety reasons you were mentioning before that we would face such a situation, but perhaps 
as an exercise to avoid leaning out our our seal as some sort of a uh, security piece. Yeah. To uh, imagine if we lost uh, that security and if we were deprofessionalized overnight, what we would do, how we would be remain relevant. Yeah, I think that's an interesting thing to end on. Um, well, thank you all three for joining. Um, you know, these things go by so fast always. I'm always surprised, even as uh, the host. <laughs> um, but uh, look forward to more conversations with you um, off the show and on the show again sometime. So thank- thanks, y'all. Welcome back to Buildings on Air. I'm your host Kiefer Dunn, and uh, as as we are uh, as we do every month here, we're joined with the uh, with Anne Louis and Craig Reschke <laughs> of Future Firm for uh, answering your listener questions in our mailbag segment. Um, luckily, I just have to ask the questions. Uh, I'm so mealy mouthed right now. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I think uh, we've talked about uh, I think the last couple episodes some pretty serious meaty issues in the mailbag. Mm. Um, so I'm happy to report uh, to Ann and Craig that um, <laughs> I have uh, hardly any serious questions that delve into licensure <laughs> and you know theory uh, um, in any significant way. I suspect we might end up there anyway somehow, mm. as is our want. Um, but yeah, we we've got some people who have some serious house problems who need our help. Um, Skyler's still in the studio with us. He might chip in on a couple of these as well. Um, but I think we'll start with um, a question from Penelope. Um, how can I tell if I have a southern exposure in my condo? I have a very sunny room, and I want to grow citrus indoors. Uh, how can I tell if there's a southern exposure in this room? Do I use a compass or something? <laughs> I, I, Kiever, you made up. The, these are these questions are trolling um, the mailbag. I don't believe that anybody, look, you know, googled Kiefer Dunn and asked if they should use a compass to figure out if they have a southern exposure. Uh, I, I, You're provoking us. No, I will I say <laughs> I did not solicit this question, but I also did not make it up. <laughs> I feel like you, you know, over a beer last night, were like, what <laughs> questions could I ask Anna Craig that will make them lose their minds? These are the things people think about on Cinco de Mayo. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What did you ask this? Okay, Craig, you, so, should, you can answer it seriously. Uh, a, compass, <laughs> a compass seems hard to find. I would maybe look at Google Maps. Y- yeah. I think, and if you have windows on the south of your house, then you have a southern exposure. Well, you could also use your eyeballs and look <laughs> at the sun. Like the sun <laughs> rises in the east and sets in the west, and you know, like you and can evaluate that over the course of the day in relationship yeah. to your windows. I guess based on and the question, I assume that this person did not understand the relationship of the sun and the south. And in that case, Google Maps is probably also not helping. <laughs> but but what do you mean by that? Because I think maybe listeners who are like, this is a ridiculous question, mm. probably don't even know. I mean, we all know the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, but it takes a southerly arc while doing so. Mm-mm-mm. Yes. And when you are in the northern hemisphere, it right. does. So I Yeah, think... please don't be global north-centric. <laughs> oh, yes, for... that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, thank you for the important <laughs> correction. Yes, to our friends on the Global South who are listening, it is, of course, the opposite. Um, 
but yeah, that's the the sun comes in directly um, um, when when you're looking south. Um, so if at noon uh, you stare out your window, Penelope, and you are just looking directly at the sun, that is probably the cheapest avenue to figuring <laughs> out whether your uh, condo has a southern exposure. In which the is, in the summer months, though, the sun will be high in the sky, and in the winter, it will be low. Yeah. Um, which uh, I think we put to use in interesting ways as architects. So, um, <laughs> you know, the, the, we can take advantage of that to let light into rooms with overhangs in the winter, but not in the summer. This Did is... you just study for your programming but, practice uh, and whatever exam? No, I I, <laughs> didn't. I I feel like there was a critical question uh, on that. <laughs> I think that's just like my go-to um, mm. sort of example of like, hey, this is the value that an architect can bring to a conversation about building because we know things about overhangs and mm. how it will reduce both your heating and air conditioning. Oh yeah, bills. I didn't mean to be like holier than thou guy. Like, yes, we should do that in buildings. Yeah. <laughs> Although the fact that I've been studying for my architect's exam does help. Mm. I will like, say that I've tried to grow citrus indoors a few times and it's never worked. Right. right. Yeah, this might just become a hypothetical question. When I'm looking at... Uh, the space, and I ask myself, could I grow an orange tree in this room? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I think the answer is pretty much always going to be no. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. I hit, here's another question for you um, from Anna. And again, I did not solicit this question, but it is also 100% a real question. <laughs> Sitting at an air conditioner on a chair instead of in a window? Question mark. Will this work or will it not do anything I mean, if I put the air conditioner on the chair, it's the same thing as if I had it in a window, right? Uh, <laughs> Peter, you're definitely make, trolling. Make us. the room cooler and stuff, Anna. I, I feel like we've done a dramatic 180. Like last week, it was like, how can we rethink A.L. Weitzman in reference to pedagogy? And like this week, it's like, if the air conditioner is not penetrating the exterior wall, will it work? Like try, try and find out. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I, I I will hit the happy medium eventually, but um, sorry sorry for putting you guys on this wild pendulum mm-hmm. ride. Mm-hmm. Uh, that being said, once I did buy an air conditioner in Chicago, and the only thing that Best Buy does not insure it for is it falling out of the window. Oh. So if you are uh, have less upper body strength as I do, perhaps you should get a friend to help you put it in the window, because yeah. there's always a critical moment when you have to close the window <laughs> and hold the air conditioner at the same time where you risk you know really, dropping it on someone's head yeah yeah, yeah. like really injuring yeah. somebody down below yeah and they're heavy yeah yeah and they have to kind of you know tilt down so they can drip out yeah which is important yeah. important to note <laughs> and another reason you don't want it on a chair in your living room <laughs> right <laughs> do they mean like on a chair sticking out the window mm, or just on a chair no i think they literally mean like buying a window ac unit mm. and putting it like on a chair in their living room mm. like I a think- box fan Yes, There's right. There's probably some kind of like in-room AC unit that doesn't have to connect right. to the outside that's like electrical, right? Am I making that up? No, I know. Nope, that's not well, a thing. Well, you need the heat to go somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, it's I a... take it back. Because <laughs> I think, uh, yeah. Like pe- a fan. People, <laughs> I, I think, uh, don't understand how the air conditioning works. It's like a heat sponge, right? And and while the sponge is absorbing the heat, it is also wringing it out somewhere else. So that's why it has to be half in or half out. Or even if you get the ones that roll around a room while they still vent out the window um, because it's just soaking up the heat and thrown it somewhere else. Mm. So if you put it on a chair in your room, um, 
it won't do anything because mm. it'll just be um, sucking it in on one side and spitting it out on the other. So I guess you might be marginally cooler um, on one side of the chair <laughs> <laughs> and not the other. Maybe. Uh. <laughs> I would be interested to know why this person wants to put it on a chair instead of in the window. Do they not have windows? Do uh, they not want to obstruct their view? Yeah. I- I think they're kind of hard to install. You you all are looking at me like I'm crazy, but I think if you're like a yeah. person on your own, they're like they're kind of heavy. They are. And like if you don't, I don't know, like if you don't have a drill, like how do you affix it to the window sash? I don't know. Those are those are real problems. It's true. Uh, last summer, I think you and I used duct tape. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> and then we like stuffed towels in between. So yeah, that's our window when you walk by. Especially in these like old Chicago windows, yeah, where yeah. you never know what kind of window profile you're gonna get, and you might have a storm window, and then you buy a bracket and it doesn't fit. I I can appreciate why this <laughs> uh, why why listener Anna is a uh, um, um, concerned. Um, so I, I here's a. Yeah, okay. So, so this is an, another non-serious question. I think these are all <laughs> non-serious questions, say. We're going to lean into it. Um, uh, how to construct or convert wooden staircase to concrete. Um, and it's spelled concrete. Scenario. We have an existing staircase, mm. which was made of wood, uh, uh, wooden stringers. We would like to make it concrete instead of wood to eliminate problems with termites. Question, how can we do this if there's no rebar connection between the slab and stair? Can we drill and plant a rebar there? Um, So I think this person knows some of the lingo, but is maybe not deploying it in the most useful way. Mm. Um, I've brought an exhibit. uh, You can hear hear the paper uh, uh, of the sketch that was drawn. Skylar, maybe as as the kind of resident guest um, for the mailbag, you can describe this sketch for the listeners as best you can. Oh, um, yeah, this is beautiful. <laughs> there's a there's a single line drawing of the profile of a stair, and it connects to a thicker slab or, or some type of framed floor at the top, but there is really no indication of anything supporting the stair at yes. the bottom. Mm. Yes, it is. It is um, it stairway is, to hell. It's a stairway to hell, yeah. Mm. So uh, how can we help this listener with their termite problem? Um, is concrete the correct solution? You could also, I think a steel stair would be easier to put into an existing building. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I mean, yes. like, is it outside? Is it? I, I wish I had more info about this person's yeah. design problem. Are termites a problem in Chicago? Um, yeah, yeah, they yeah. are. I've had some some issues. Uh, producer Jamie is nodding his head. Mm. I hope he has doesn't have any personal experience. Oh, he's <laughs> nodding his head again. <laughs> All right. So now now uh, we're not we're answering this question for Jamie. Uh, mm. Well, <laughs> first they should hire an architect. Yeah. <laughs> then yes. that architect should hire a structural engineer. <laughs> right. Uh, like, do they want like a cast concrete stair, or do they want like a concrete tread in a steel pan? Yeah, I, I don't know. And I think uh, it's worth maybe describing sort of what those things are, because yeah. if you just make a wood stair, as you would see a kind of wood stair going into a mm. basement or something out of concrete, it's not going to it's not going to work for structural reasons. Um, because Oh, like, I mean, I guess it depends if it's going into a basement, they could like cast all the way down to the ground. Yeah, that's yeah. But sure. I guess that stair seemed it, a little mystery. Yeah. That, that <laughs> sketch makes it look like it is in a concrete 
that there's a concrete slab and concrete beam at the top of the stair, right? Yes, maybe. So yeah. it's strange to me that there would be a wood stair, wood stair inside a concrete building. Yes. Unless it's probably not up to code in the first place, was also kind of what I was thinking here. <laughs> But I think they should invest in a beautiful new steel stair, which will no. not be susceptible to termites. And if they want like a, a sexy, polished concrete tread, yeah, you could do that. Well, we are, we always talk about, you know, kind of, uh, see, I told you we would go here and this is my <laughs> fault. But we always talk about like the way that like the agency of the architect is being limited. Mm. Um, and I think this is one of the ways that might benefit this question asker is mm. you could probably just go to a uh, – sales rep somewhere that sells steel stairs mm. um, and just like almost literally buy one off the shelf and they will draw up everything mm. for you and get an, a professional engineer to stamp it mm. and um, probably even do the installation. Mm. Um, so um, as much as it kills me to say you don't have to hire an architect, you probably don't have to hire an architect. But they should hire, they an, should architect. hire an architect. Because what if they need a new house actually and they <laughs> yeah, just don't right. know? <laughs> yes. And when we show up, we'll suggest that to them. <laughs> And bear in mind that uh, whatever professional is advising you on the stair is going to tell you that the steel stair also weighs more than the wood one did. Yes. And you're going to have to find some way of supporting it at the bottom. Yes, that is true. Um, okay, here's a, here's a curveball question. Um, in honky, as if they haven't all been curveballs, uh, if, if in honky-tonk places you see in old Western movies, why is there always sawdust and straw on the floor? Oh, is that why, Jamie? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Is there some charades answers happening yeah. in the studio right now? <laughs> I think, uh, and, and I think maybe you can describe Imagine somebody <laughs> pointing, at, uh, making a puking <laughs> gesture. Yeah. Um, I just assumed it was because in those kind of environments, there's a lot of straw and dirt around outside right. that gets tracked in and no one's sweeping the floor. No, but I, I think, I think Jamie is right on here. Um, do you, do you want to, can you, if I move my mic, will you speak into the microphone? As, as someone that is a consumer at bars, I can assure you that sawdust and peanut shells are there to soak up uh, certain liquids that might be expelled from people's bodies after a long <laughs> session of drinking. And that is because the liquid will coagulate in the sawdust and you can sweep it up much easier. Mm. Like you would see groundskeeper Willie do in The Simpsons, say, mm. after sure. uh, what's his name gives him a mighty pile of puke. <laughs> Fantastic. And there here Craig go. and I were like, those places are so dirty. They really <laughs> yeah, need <right>. to sweep. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, the dirt is there. The sawdust is there for sanitary reasons. It's there for aesthetic purposes, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> um, yeah, I imagine it does make things look pretty cool in an old Western movie when there is a bar fight and there is dust going everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, that can't uh, hurt. Um, there you go. I mean, I, now I have all these fantasies about. Um, <laughs> The next time I design a Western <laughs> bar and I have to like specify like mm. sawdust for the floor or like, you know, some sort of flooring that is going to work well um, for this this setup that, um, you know, some uh, bar owner in a rough and tumble, um, you know, Western town might have issues with. That's such a unique fantasy keeper. I really hope <laughs> it comes true for you one day. I guess uh, it, it'll be my my fantasy. Um, yeah, I'm going to just do it as a speculative project. Why not? <laughs> Unsolicited architecture spec for honky tonk bar floor. Yeah, I'm going to yeah, do yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'll have master a spec section. <laughs> I don't know. Flooring. I, I guess it would go under specialties. Yes. <laughs> 
um, <laughs> special equipment. <laughs> yeah, which is I. But I think this is an interesting thing, and maybe we've brought it up before in the mailbag. But like specifications and what those are, because um, it is like a, a, I don't know, Craig. Uh, maybe <laughs> I feel like I feel like you are the most qualified amongst us to just give a broad overview of what a building spec is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, if drawings explain the size and location of things, specifications describe the quality of those things. So if you have a metal rail, you can draw that in your in your drawing set and you can show that it's uh, an inch in diameter and it's located three and a half feet above the stair or whatever. But the specification will then tell the contractor what kind of metal you want that to be. Is it stainless steel? Is it painted? Um, how is it treated? And then um, specifications are divided into different divisions based on something called master spec. Yes, it's a very ominous sounding uh, name. Yes, and they they tend to be these like large books that most architects don't actually really understand what's in them, and there are like a few old guys in the back of the office that are the spec writers that have the whole thing memorized. Yeah, which is spooky too because it's like it's a, a large part of uh, what uh, determines the quality of a building, um, and we we deal with it very little in the day to day unless you are like. Uh, a small practitioner, as, as you guys are, uh, Anne and Craig. I we have, don't write specs. Uh, you don't write specs? We, no? we write outline. Well, yeah, this is actually a big question. So any, you know, capital A architects who would like to advise us on whether how to handle specs for really small building projects should call in and, you know, reverse question answer with us. Yeah. Because right now we, we do basically outline specifications yeah. on our drawing set rather than a separate book of specifications, which I think works well for small projects. But I also have two books that I recently ordered off Amazon <laughs> on specification writing, and I am trying to improve my specification skills. So Fantastic. So far, we just copy and paste from the internet. That's yeah. Not from not from specs from the internet, from product specs on the internet. Right. Jeez, some client is listening to this and, you know, like firing us. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so uh, moving along, um, here's another question. Um, what can you put on metal heater baseboards to protect them from urine? I have metal base. <laughs> <laughs> I have I have metal baseboards <laughs> alongside my toilet, and with boys, urine ends up on them and they rust. I don't know what I can use to protect them and stop it from happening. Okay, this is a funny question, <laughs> but this is like an. A super pragmatic problem that is totally real and Does within this actually our skill set to help. Gentlemen, what in I, houses that you've lived in where you were, you know, I don't know, not very precisely urinating, your baseboard heaters rusted? Oh, I didn't have baseboard heaters um, in my home growing up. Yeah, um, but I I could see how this might how the the aim of a 13-year-old boy or, or boys of that age might mm. result in, in this problem. Plus, I think it's also just, uh, you know, a bathroom is a very humid place in a home, if not well-ventilated, and having metal in that room um, does does propose challenges. <laughs> this is like a, there is a period in one's life as a cis man that you are not aiming very correctly, that yeah. lasts for more than a short period of time. Yeah, yes. perhaps, but I mean, also, <laughs> in general, you know, when you're considering the finishes around fixtures, mm. there's, I guess, 
what you could call a splash radius. Yes, that is that. I've, I mean, that has been indicated on drawings I've seen right. before. You're also nonplussed by this. I'm totally terrified. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, Okay, well, how can this person fix this? They can't put a plastic or fabric or anything on top of it, so it needs to be, like, some sort of metal guard, right? Mm. Uh, Maybe wiping it down when cleaning the bathroom with a little bit of WD-40 would help prevent the rust. Hmm. Preventative maintenance of yeah. keeping things. I think but to the the mom has to clean more. That's the answer no, to this problem. I, I, didn't, I didn't say the mom has to clean. <laughs> right. The thirteen year old boys are perfectly capable yes. of cleaning. And right. I think this is where we rescue this question from any <laughs> any uh, issues of gender inequity. Is that uh, th- I think we can safely say that buildings on air stands behind uh, forcing uh, the the boys who sprayed it to uh, uh, clean it up yeah, um, yeah. to keep their poor mom from having to. To, uh, deal with this at all in the first place. Yes. Right. But I also, I, I think uh, <laughs> whatever architect designed this, I hope uh, w- adequately ventilated. That, that's another kind of preventative design maintenance. Mm. Um, all right. <laughs> Two minutes left. So, last question. Um, can you have a water meter removed? Question mark. I recently heard from someone just yesterday that unmetered buildings in Chicago, if you don't have a water meter, you're charged $1,000 every six months for your water, which is like astronomically more expensive than metered water. Yeah. So I can't imagine why you would want to remove the water meter. (laughs) I think it will just cost you more. Yeah. I think probably to avoid paying, but um, Mm. I I imagine they'd catch up with you. Mm. It was the reverse. It used to be much, much cheaper to not have a meter. The, Mm. The estimate cost was way under average use. So people fought having them installed. Oh, interesting. So I didn't realize that that they would just estimate your water usage and mm-hmm. and charge you for that. Right. Ah, how long ago was that? Well, I don't know exactly when they increased the estimate. Mm. You said to two thousand a year. This is what someone told me okay. yesterday. I have no <laughs> I have no facts other than what I heard from someone else. So they could have been lying to me. <laughs> but it was a HVAC engineer. It was. Mm. I see. Wow. And a mechanical engineer. Yeah. Somebody um, who favors meters. Yes. <laughs> That's true. Uh, but uh, there's some inherent, but I don't think <laughs> that the mechanical engineer really like uh, is that much privileged in an individual way by installing more water meters around. But I think right. generally we all pay much less for water than it actually costs to have the water delivered to us. So you should, everyone should be happy to, to pay their water bill and support <laughs> civic infrastructure so that mm. we don't have problems like uh, we did in Flint. Yeah, that is a, a very, um, I think, like civic pride way to end the show. <laughs> and as a, uh, a, a show that, pride, that is listened to nationally but prides itself on uh, being a locally broadcast Chicago radio program, um, it's a good place for us to end. Um, go Chicago. Um, we're not supposed to, on non-commercial radio, tell you what to do, but it's a good idea to pay your water bills. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> uh, and leave your water Hopefully the place. FCC as a government organization can appreciate me saying that. Um, and uh, um, yeah, thanks for listening to Buildings on Air. Thanks to our producer, Jamie, uh, for making the boards run and giving us the excellent outro that you're about to hear. And Craig, Skyler, thanks. Talk to you guys next month. This has been Buildings on Air on Lumpen Radio. Buildings on Air is a production of Lumpen Radio. 
hosted by Kiefer Dunn, produced by Logan Bay and Jamie Trecker. Visit us on the web at buildingsonair.live. If you want us to answer your questions about buildings on the air, send them via Twitter at BLDGS on air or via email at buildingsonair at gmail.com. This show is also available as a podcast on iTunes.